It's October 19th, 2023. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 291 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Hello to you from Canada. Salam dustan aziz durud bashama. Hope you are doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. This program is about talking to Iranians and non-Iranians. <laughs> and talking to you out there about being Iranian and building and understanding our evolving Iranian identity, especially outside of Iran, if somehow that all makes sense. Then let me introduce Smart Pega. Hello, Pega. Hello. Smart Pega. Yes, SPG. SPG, Smart Pega Ganji. The same thing as Smart Pega Ganji, SPG. It's not a new name if I call her SPG. <laughs> Are we more polarized than ever? Is the world more polarized? The world, I'm not sure why the I said world. that. Is the world more polarized than it has ever been? That's my that's my question and our theme today, and it's kind of a forlorn, it's sort of a, a sad yearning question mm-hmm. because it's not a happy thought yeah. at how balkanized, how polarized our world has become. Our guest today is a very appropriate guest for this question, author and entrepreneur Milan Kordestani, young guy who's written a book called I'm Just Saying, A Guide to Maintaining Civil Discourse in an Increasingly divided world. He's going to join us from uh, LA Mm -hmm. in just a little bit. I think the book should be I'm Just Saying. Yeah, that sounds a little better. Maybe it, maybe, the, maybe somehow that's correct, culturally inappropriate to say. I'm just, but I'm just saying is the way he's written it. I'm just saying a guide to maintaining civil discourse in an increasingly divided world. Mm-hmm. That's what he's talking about. I just finished reading, reading the book and I'm looking forward to talking to him about it and intersecting with this theme, this question for this episode is the world more polarized than it has ever been? Now, why ask this question at this moment? Well, Let's recap the last week or two. Mm-hmm. First, it was the horrific terrorist atrocities carried out by uh, in Israel by clients of the Islamic Republic mm-hmm. last week that was incredibly heartbreaking to see. And for those of us fed up with the regime in Iran and its sponsorship of atrocities, incredibly maddening too. Right. And now, you know, I, I don't know how anyone can assess what's happening in Gaza right now without feeling profound heartache Mm -hmm. for innocent Palestinians caught in the middle of all of this and being killed, many of whom have absolutely no fidelity to Hamas. Mm -hmm. But everyone knows that part and has made their, you know, their feelings clear or whatever. Certainly, I, I, I feel what makes it all worse is seeing the deep polarization of our world, particularly in the di- the digital space, yeah. where everyone seems to look at these events and assess them based on whatever is happening in their own echo chambers. Mm-hmm. So we know about this, right? We're in silos. We're in we're in our own bubbles. We have mm-hmm. our own like group of cool friends, and we 
our platforms increasingly feed us only what they That's are right. telling us, affirmation over information. Mm-hmm. We take all of that and then we make our decisions about world events. Quick judgments. And I don't, I, and, and somewhere the truth lies <laughs> in between the echo chambers. Right. And is there a place in the world that isn't polarized at this point? I'd love to find it if there is. It's just one aches for what's happening in Israel and what was happening in Gaza. Mm -hmm. And then one aches for people yelling at each other in social media or or canceling each other, etc. And I will put this to Milan Kordistani, but I feel surely the internet, the, the digital age, social media, have to carry a lot of the weight here for for how we've become this polarized. It's not like we weren't polarized before. There were revolutions, there were wars, there was whatever. But that an entire planet of humans are all bickering at each other and Mm -hmm. taking different positions and staking their ground and believing they are right and true and and that the middle seems to be more and more evaporating as everybody runs into their echo chambers. That's new. um, I mean, let me ask you this. Okay. For all the technology and AI and you know reports we get from the front lines that get zapped into our pockets in right. an instant, right? Do you believe, Pegaganji, smart Pegaganji, okay. do you believe we are actually more informed? Do you believe we're actually more informed? We get a lot of information. Okay. Are we more informed of what is actually going on in the world than we were, say, 15 or 20 years ago before we had everything pumped into our mm-hmm. smartphones and 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 through people that we follow on social media. I think we have more access to information, but I actually think we're more misinformed. So although we have all these wonderful, you know, advancements in technology like you're saying the social media and news getting straight to our phone and breaking news alerts and this and that, um, and having access to so much more I think because of the fact that we're all within these echo chambers, as you as you described it, we're misinformed more. We don't have we don't readily access the other side, if you will. Right. So we're constantly just affirming our own biases we're being and that f- of our own friends. A fed a diet of affirmation. Mm-hmm. We're being fed a diet of what we already believe in, and anything that steps outside of that, we get extremely upset at or That's shocked right. at. How could that person possibly take that position? because we're so used to hearing from our crowd that all of, mm-hmm. and the script is written within seconds. There's any event that's take that takes place. Everybody takes their, you know, I mean, everybody, I'm, I'm making generalizations <laughs> here. We try to work against this. We try to be, to be, uh, I don't know, mindful, but whatever takes place anywhere in the world, especially if it's something controversial mm-hmm. or horrific or an atrocity, People are in their entrenched position based on the cue they take from the, the, the echo chamber they're in, right? That's right. And so I was, I mean, the obvious example in the last few days has been this horrible hospital bombing mm-hmm. where depending on who you are, you believe, no, this was Israel. No, this was Hamas. No, it didn't hit the hospital. Yes, it did hit the hospital. No, there weren't 500 killed. Yes, there were. And everybody's so sure about their opinions yeah. when any reasonable approach would be let's wait and try and find the evidence on the ground if we mm-hmm. can even then who are we getting the evidence from but rather than use that as an example let's go back a, a three or four weeks earlier to this poor kid this teenager Armita oh, yeah. 
who was on the subway in Tehran. Yes. Right. This is the this is the person who was uh, came up against went onto the subway without a hijab, uh, encountered the hijab police. Mm-hmm. There was some kind of altercation. Armita was forcibly pushed to the ground or whatever it was, hit her head so badly that she was taken out uh, to a hospital and in a coma, and we now believe brain dead. That's right. Now, in the in the moments and days after this, uh, somebody sent me video. This this person actually happened to I, I don't know if they they're a supporter of the regime in Iran or they just want to show the other side or whatever. Were showing me state footage from like from inside Iran well, state, state TV you've state already, TV you've already got your Farce answer. TV whatever that is you know the Farce TV right millions of followers and methodically showing how this was an accident there was no evidence that there were hijab police were anywhere near this mm-hmm. she fell and hit her head and there are people who pers- subscribe to that opinion and then of course there's the rest of us going no we see a pattern of behavior mm-hmm. but and so we know that this was the regime. This is the hijab police. This a kid doesn't just fall and hit their head bad enough that they're in a, a coma. She's oh, 16 yeah. years old. She's healthy. What? And then we th- then they go, well, there's no video of it. Well, if we saw the video, I'm sure there would be questions about that. Where too. was the video? Who's the video coming yeah. from? Etc. Is it real? Is it not real? And we run into our our own little chambers. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of us who. That, that might be a very obvious example for those of us who, who oppose the, the regime in Iran. But nevertheless, there's clearly people on the other side, if you will, right. who think, no, 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 nothing happened there. And I've got the evidence. And what part does civil discourse or the lack of it play into our division? Mm-hmm. So while all of this is happening on the ground, there's, I mean, there's actual wars going on in the world, right, mm-hmm. on the ground uh, and, and in the streets of Iran. There's, there's a second parallel war going on digitally oh, yes. involving everyone yelling at each other in social media, canceling each other, um, shaming each other, etc. And the, 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 the erosion of anyone in the middle or the civil discourse mm-hmm is what we're gonna talk about with this new book from from Milan Kordistani. And is it possible to recapture any kind of civil discourse or is it endemic to social media and the internet that we have to all just be toxic? Exactly, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, as as you were just talking right now, I was thinking, I don't think there's anyone who's, you know, online, if you will, who doesn't understand this. We we all know and yet we're we're sucked into this and it, it's almost become more and more common and more and more accepted to even say that, oh well right. that's just what it is with social media, you know? But it, it really shouldn't right. be. And I mean, so it, often the same person who's saying, Oh my god, I hate the toxicity of social yeah. media cancel him, he said exactly. this joke, you know, like what I mean it's a, yeah, the how you grapple with all of that. Milan, by the way. 24 years old this uh, little prodigious uh, this prodigy who's like a he's founded various uh, mm-hmm. companies he's an entrepreneur uh, he's written quite a bit he's got two very famous Iranian parents mm-hmm. uh, and he is making a name for himself and and good for him I mean one of the questions I want to ask him and I, it won't be in a patronizing way is Dude, where do you get the confidence? Yeah, You're in your early 24. 20s to start telling everybody how we should act. But good for him. That's good right. for him. And I'm curious to see. These are not quest- easy questions that 
I'm going to be putting to him. I mean, mm-hmm. how do we get rid of negativity in the world? Go. Definitely uh, you know. not an easy question. But he wrote the book. Yeah. So let's see. So Milan Kordestani coming up. And the question, are we more polarized than ever? Later in the show, I love this story. So young Iranian couple, youngish, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even know what young is anymore. <laughs> Is Milan Kordistani young? He's twenty-four. He's very young. That's that's very young. That's very young. I, I always remember. I was in a when I was in my band. Yeah. And we were twenty-two, and we were in New York, being interviewed, and mm-hmm. and I always remember the radio host, and she was like, "You guys are so young, you know." And I remember thinking, "I'm twenty-two. <laughs> who is this lady who thinks I'm young? Twenty-two. I'm over twenty. You must you know? have felt like such a grown-up. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, so this young couple—I I don't know—I think they're maybe in their thirties or something. I mean, that's still very young. Very young, but they are here in Canada, mm-hmm. in Toronto. Oh, they were. They met here actually. They're both Iranian, but they met here. Okay. I believe, and uh, they've decided to forsake urban life. Mm-hmm. Like you know how we we often talk about Iranians in the diaspora. We're right. amongst them. You know, Iranians who've left Iran, usually unwittingly, unwi- mm-hmm. um, unwillfully exiled, whatever. Uh, most Iranians outside of Iran are living in urban centers. Oh, Not yeah. only that, but like cherish urban, modern yeah. technology, all of that. For sure. These guys, these this young couple have gone back to the land. Wow. They are, they are, they believe in healthy rural living. Okay. And they have started a, a farm outside of uh, of Toronto, like about an hour mm-hmm. or something from here, you know. And it's a chicken farm. I can't wait to hear about this. They got the chickens, the little chickens running around. That's amazing. I don't think they eat the chickens. Really? Oh. No, they okay. don't eat the chickens. They make the, because the chickens make eggs for them. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's an egg farm. I don't know a lot about, <laughs> I'm gonna have to ask them about the chickens. Uh, but it's called the Calion Hobby Farm. And Calion is actually a place in Iran. Where one of the the members of this couple, Farashid, used to go as a little boy. It was a mm-hmm. farm that he had in Iran. So now he's started one here. I love this story. I love the story of the. Uh, I, I first, uh, I think they they started following me, or I saw them online, or something, because they become very popular in social media. Mm-hmm. Not polarized. I don't Not think. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow they've avoided the Somehow polarizing. Somehow there's unity with the chickens. The, okay. Yeah, the chickens are brought. That's the answer, maybe. That, the that chickens. That must be. That must uh, be the answer. Until they find out we're eating them, but until uh, <laughs> Colonel Sanders comes along. No, so uh, I, I think the chicken farm started following me or something like that. And I was like, oh, I'm being followed by a chicken, chicken farm. Chicken farm. You know? Very cool. I thought these are Canadians, like uh, by which I mean white people. Right. Who has a Who chicken farm? Known? Then I find out their names are like Muhammad, and no, they're not. But they're some, they're very like Persian, you know. And they're they're Iranians, young Iranians running a chicken farm. That to anyone listening to us right now in Iran who's like lives in a rural place is going to be comical. What do, you, what do you think we, you know? I mean, if anything, Iranians are you know have had their rural experience. It right. shouldn't be a surprise that there's f- farmers, you know. But uh, but I'm not used to that because I've grown up in the either. diaspora with everybody living in. In the heart if, of Toronto, if not like, in the city, worse in the suburbs, yeah, you know, in gated communities, etc. Right, exactly. The chicken farm, the chicken farmers will be here, amazing. And they, you know, they're chickens, they have names. Oh, yeah, the chickens all have names. This is just getting more and more interesting. Well, okay. I guess. <laughs> 
So uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we've got the, the Rook Roundup coming up uh, as well with you, Pega. That's mm-hmm. usually negative uh, news. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> and we're going to talk about polarization in the world. But first of all, before we get to uh, Milan Kordesani and before we get to our Roundup and the chicken farmers, uh, some positive news that yes. broke this morning or a few hours ago. A it's now ago. early evening of uh, Thursday. Uh, but uh, but w- w- this is the Sakharov Prize, mm-hmm. a European prize. Tell us the good news. So the European Union has awarded its top human rights prize to Mahsa Amini and the Iranian Women Life Freedom Movement that um, was sparked as a result of, of um, her death, actually. And so this was, um, like you said, it was announced a couple of hours ago. And, you know, in the midst of all of this horror that we see, just a little bit of good news. And something I really wanted to point out, which really, I guess, touched my heart, was um, her parents had actually written a letter um, after hearing about this and um, there was a quote in there that you know her parents were saying it's they're so pleased and so happy to see their daughter's name uh, being turned into a symbol of freedom within the world yeah and I just thought you know as parents who've just lost their child to be able to say something like that and to see the impact that her death has had it was just it was really heartwarming for sure there's always that instinct that one has to kind of go we don't want Grammy awards and mm-hmm. human rights prizes. We want, ha- you know, we want to stop enabling this terrorist yep. regime, whatever. But you know, if one of the what was one of the slogans we had last year, all year, woman, life, freedom. Well, another slogan. <laughs> yes, that one for sure. But um, say her name. Say her name. Say yeah. her name. Maso Amini. Yeah. And and why is that? Why was that important? Because the idea is to keep her name and memory exactly. alive, as well as all the other people, especially the kids that mm-hmm. were have been killed in Iran, as a symbol of what this regime has done, and mm-hmm. as a symbol of the desire for freedom and and democracy and basic rights and women's rights and all of that in Iran. Say her name, Maso mm-hmm. Amini. This prize. Helps that happen. Exactly. Enables that. And I think, you know, we talked about this on, on our bonus podcast on, on Monday, and we were saying that, you know, the the fact is that even a prize like this, even though we think within the realm of, oh, not another Grammy and whatever else, but, you know, maybe there's one person out there who the last year has been living under a rock and hasn't heard the name Massa Amini, and this results in them going and looking it up and, and learning about what has happened. And I think the education piece is so important for anyone who isn't aware of what's happening and isn't aware of the nuances in Iran and isn't Iranian. Yeah. And for all the people who are kind of, you know, uh, next Monday, if we do, uh, you know, with a bonus podcast, mm-hmm. with a, if I would do another roundup roundtable, uh, I want to talk about this incre- increasing, the increasing weirdness of being an Iranian who is trying to explain to people why I'm angry at Iran in, in terms of what's going on in the Middle yeah. East. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine, he, he's a Guyanese guy, and he was like, hey, you know, what's happening? You know, what do you think of what's happening in the Middle East? You know, and I said, yeah, I'm really angry at Iran. He was kind of like, what? What's Iran got to do with <laughs> but it? But there's like the Palestinians and the Israelis. Yeah. What do you, you know, <laughs> and why are you angry? You're Iranian. Isn't that racist? <laughs> we shouldn't be angry at Iran. Oh, God. And, and I hope that the Sakharov Prize for Masa, I mean, like keeping the name alive, keeping mm-hmm. the, the memory, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, and it continues, of the uprising, will help people put the put the pieces together yes. that the Iranian people are not supporting funding Hamas, you know, and exactly. the Hezbollah, I mean, maybe some of them, uh, but nobody yes. that we know. 
even simplifying it more and reiterating the fact that the Iranian people and the Islamic regime are not the same thing. I think Thank that you. in and of itself is the biggest thing that we want to keep echoing. Yeah, which which I figured people would know that by now, but I, I noticed I Reza Pahlavi <laughs> tweeting that today. Mm-hmm. That very thing. Yeah. So I figure he needed he he figured there was a reason to. So clearly people are not are blurring the lines again between Iranians I mean, when you have Iranian. a friend say, isn't that racist? He, he didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't actually say that. I added that. No, he, but he was very confused. Yeah. He was like, why are you talking about Iran? Well, I'm, I'm asking you what's wrong in the Middle right. East. And so then I had to kind of explain. Uh, and then he kind of went, yeah, but didn't they say they weren't sure if Iran was involved? And I'm like, hang on, take a seat. Yeah. Let me Let explain me how you. Iran is involved. <laughs> And by the way, remember how angry we were at this regime? You know, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. But anyway, all right. Um, so we'll get to uh, uh, more of the roundup of the news. But uh, yes. but that's a really, that's a positive. we got to count the positive stuff. Yes, we do. Sakharov Prize. Congratulations to Massa Amini and her family and to Iranians who have been keeping her name alive. Um, we are coming to you on various platforms. So depending on where you... Uh, listen to and consume Rook. Remember, we're on uh, SoundCloud and Spotify and Apple and CastBox and Telegram. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram and you can uh, watch what we do on YouTube. The entire interview, video of the mm-hmm. interview with Fashod Motaki. Am I saying his name right? Yes. Motaki. <laughs> I got nervous all of a sudden. He's such a nice man. I don't want to say his Make name sure wrong. Make sure we got his name The right news is. anchor at Manato. He was on our show last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire interview now is on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to go there, it's uh, Rock Media. And remember to support what we do on this program, and we like it when you do. Thank you so much to those of you who are patrons. Uh, for a few bucks a month. It makes a difference to us. We know who you are. We appreciate it. And you get some extra programming. Go to our website, rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, and press the Support Us button. It'll take you to the Patreon page. And uh, it's very simple. It's very simple. Very easy to do. See you in a bit for the yes. roundup. Stick uh, stick around and listen to this. Uh, oh, looking forward to yes. it. Yes. Uh, let me, uh, I think he's, we have him. Okay. So let's get to our first guest. My first guest today is a dynamic Iranian-American entrepreneur, author, and founder of four startups that emphasize social impact and ethical business practices, all while he is still in his early 20s. Milan Kordestani was born in Stanford, California to Iranian parents. He got his degree in environmental science from Colorado College and has written on different topics for numerous online publications, including Rolling Stone, The Huffington Post, Entrepreneur, and Forbes, to name just a few. He is a popular voice in the digital space on everything from AI to entrepreneurism. And he's also recently published his first book, I'm Just Saying, A Guide to Maintaining Civil Discourse in an Increasingly Divided World is the name is the name of the book. And right now, Milan Cordestani joins me from Los Angeles, California. Hello, sir. Hello, Jan. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you on on the on the program. Thank you for doing this. I've just finished your book, and because of that, and because of the the subject matter that is so germane to everything going on in the world today, I'm going to focus on the book, and I thank you for writing it. 
thank you for taking the time to read it before getting on a podcast to speak about it. So I really appreciate it. It shocks me that anybody would interview you about your book without reading the book. But I, but I, I do know that's the case as someone who's written books before. You go on yeah. interviews and somebody reads the back cover and does the interview. Uh, let me ask you this first. I mean, your interest in searching for healthy communication and civil discourse, part of the uh, subtitle of the book, uh, it's not just from a rising social media star and entrepreneur getting clicks standpoint. This is quite personal for you, as I understand it. You write this in the book. You're a you're a young guy, but you say your life was changed when you were nine, and your parents yes. divorced. Of course, divorce will affect any kid. But how did it inspire the kind of work and focus you have now? Sure. So I think a lot of a lot of the excitement for me when it came to civil discourse was from a writer myself and trying to find my own voice. And I talk about the personal aspects of my life. I talk about my parents' divorce. I talk about being really young and traveling to different parts of the U.S. that were more conservative in the South and um, how, you know, those experiences were actually surprising because I actually had really positive experiences and, and, you know, meeting people who were so much more polite than, say, like the West Coast of the U.S. Um, and so there was... There was a lot of these moments throughout my life that were really impactful where I kind of just picked up these lessons on how to be a more effective communicator. And one of the greatest lessons, I think, um, I was maybe 16, 17 years old that I learned is that just being nice to people is like the greatest way to advance your life, your career, your personality, like everything is better if you can find a way to be kind to people. And But to actually be genuine in that how you show up every day, it takes a lot of practice. It's an art. And so that's kind of how I came to um, fall in love with the being an effective communicator. And then, you know, it was through through writing, really. I started writing when I was 16, 17 for publications about different interests, whether it was agriculture, later entrepreneurship and, and music. But um, throughout that process as a writer, I realized that in the culture of cancel culture where people are so afraid to then share an opinion anymore whether it's online or even in their personal life uh, we stop having really important conversations that we need sure. to have as a, as a society to you know find common ground to be able to be progressive so that was what this book was all about the reason i i wanted to start with the the divorce, which you just mentioned a couple times in the book, yeah. is because it intersects with a couple of things that you talk about in the book. And I think you you learn, it seems like you learn this lesson, uh, one might say the hard way through a divorce, but two of the things you talk about that came out of that, uh, trying to understand what was going on with your parents, being hurt by it, et cetera, was yeah. communication. And you later in the book talk about understanding and empathy. Um, tell tell me about what in your internal family unit, before we get into the big ideas that we're going to get into of the book, what you learned about those two things. Sure. So, and, and divorce, of course, is like very common now, especially in the United States. Um, so I, I think it's really, I share the stories in the book because I wanted to, people to be able to relate to that and to hear those stories and see how they can take those stories and say, look, I'm not going to use this to be, depressed for a lifetime or use this as a traumatic experience that holds me back but instead of something that teaches me lessons and value and and i can take that and make it a, um, a something of good um or you know taking the the sourest lemons of life and making the best lemonade you can um to be a little cliche there uh so 
specifically some of the lessons like when I my stepmother I, I had a really interesting relationship with her um you know like when when my parents got divorced and I you know I had a new stepmother in my life that relationship was really weird and you know my mother was hurting and so she would say different things to me and my sister about her and so it would create this like really challenging dynamic for a nine-year-old to go between houses and have to kind of keep up appearances and so there was a lesson even in that which was like how do you be diplomatic between these two adults as a as a young person and how do you kind of um not get in trouble not ruffle feathers and kind of just like do that and and so that's a communicative tactic in and of itself um i think learning how to what to respond to what not to respond to when to formulate your own opinion around certain things versus just taking in other people's opinions um not needing to respond to things super quickly when you don't know what's going on because a lot of times when you're really young you don't know what's going on and, and, and sorry like, I, I i do know you're something of a prodigy but were you actually <laughs> thinking in those terms at the age of nine or is this analysis you're doing retrospectively of how you learn to be diplomatic yeah so i think it's it's retrospective for sure i'm looking back and i'm able to see how some of those moments then translated to other moments in my life like i was i just did a lot of things really young in addition to going through that experience somewhat young um or th through the formative years like you know starting my first business and having to kind of like hide that from my parents because i wasn't supposed to be running a business while in school you know um and and so like I, I share those stories in the book as well but just in general like being a young person going through things that you don't understand you end up having to become a lot more wise i think at a, at a younger age and uh, i don't think that's unique to me or you or you don't and you succumb to it and and become a bitter, angry person, I suppose. Uh, you, you've chosen that's, a, 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 a... But that's a, why I write books. Or, right, <laughs> you know, that's right, why I write right. content to inspire well, you, you, I mean, you, you don't just write books, books, but you don't just write books, but you're, you, you don't lack for ambition. The impetus for your book, it does seem quite grand. I mean, in the foreword to the book, Abbas Milani says, let me quote him, Milan has set himself the Herculean but commendable task of saving and promoting the indispensable pillar of democracy. I mean, this <laughs> this is big yeah. stuff. You're like Lincoln. Do you, do you, do you <laughs> <laughs> according to Abbas Milani, do you see your mission that way? Um, so in Lincoln being very political, being a president, uh, I don't see it in that way. I see it more in a philosophical realm. Uh, well, a lot of what I like to think of myself as is an ability to connect people to a better version of themselves or show themselves a, a mirror to who they could be and i do that a lot by doing that to myself and putting that on camera and you know like um just this mentality that we have to constantly adapt and be willing to change and it's going to be awkward and sometimes it's going to be weird and ugly and and uncomfortable but we have to push through that and there's many people throughout time who talk about this right like the stoic philosophers are ones and uh, are people who talk about this and um and so many others but yeah like when i think of like i'm someone who really strives for excellence i grew up in the silicon valley where i saw a lot of incredible people change the world and so from and my parents as well um so for me there is this like constant curiosity about how do you practice excellence and what does excellence look like and what does it look like in different industries and as an individual in my work and then also as an individual in my personal life you know and balancing those two things so so it's, it sounds yeah. like the answer is yes that that you do see your mission i mean you are you are to save well like what would your 
<laughs> elevator pitch be? If I said, give me your the mission of this book in one line, what would it be? The mission of this book is to inspire people to strive for common ground above all else in conversation. Beautiful. It's okay. not to be right. It's not to, I mean, uh, to add on to my one sentence, it's like, it's not to be right <laughs> You only wrong. get one. The elevators, we reach the floor. <laughs> we're, we're, we're leaving right. the elevator. Yeah, but it was good. Uh, now, uh, let me ask this, and, and I don't ask it at all in a patronizing way. In fact, I ask it in, a, um, in an inspired, I'm, I'm inspired by you. You are 24. And yes. you are, I mean, which is younger than 25. You're 24. You are doling out career advice, ideas about how we should govern ourselves socially, even how entrepreneurs should stay positive in business. I mean, beyond the book, in terms of all the things that you put out there, you seem to have a captive audience. What yeah. has given you or what has what gave you the confidence to think people would listen to you? Oof. That's a great question. I think the first, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. What gave me the confidence? I think it's like a willingness to fail um, and just to like look stupid or be wrong. And it's I follow all of the generic people who entrepreneurs tell you to follow from Gary Vee to Oprah Winfrey and so on. Like I, and Shark Tank, like all of these people throughout life, as you watch them and you see the pieces of advice they give out, they constantly share stories of when they failed. And it's really important to hear successful people talk about how, when they failed, because it shows you that you kind of, it's a, it's a rite of passage, you have to go through that. And so even in the social media era we live in now, um, you're right, like for me to sit there and doll out advice to people as though I've, I've lived some of these stories for decades um, could seem, really like contradictory or there, there's definitely a lot of imposter syndrome sometimes when I do that. But what I keep reminding myself of and what these people I follow that inspire me um, to remember is that it is the uniqueness of my perspective of being the young person of, of yes. you know, getting my perspective as a young person and what inspired me that will allow that next young person or that person my age to be motivated by what I'm saying. Um, whereas, you know, they might hear from someone else and it doesn't it doesn't hit the right way. You are unquestionably a valuable voice, I think, especially because of, of your you, you have a perspective that I don't have because I'm not in my 20s anymore. So you have that you have that perspective. I'm just curious right. about you. Right. And I should say, yeah. and let me put the asterisks on it that I don't. I don't at all get a sense of you. You're not cocky. It's not like we watch this and go, Jesus, this guy's so poru, you know? It, but yeah. there is a confidence there. And I, I'm watching you and I'm reading the book and I'm thinking, do you ever have, you, do you have those moments where you go, who, who the fuck am I to be telling all these people how to be entrepreneurs and how to, how to live their life and how to talk to each other? And I mean, you are not just speaking to 20 year olds, you're yeah. speaking to the world, right? all the time i have it all the time it's imposter syndrome and it gets worse every time i try something new and it's something new more challenging uh this coming tuesday i'm speaking to two congressmen and moderating a conversation between the two of them i don't at all feel qualified to be doing that uh but you know like little by little you, you know i i didn't feel like i should have put out a book but i wrote the book and then i had a publisher that wanted to put it out and it was like all right let's put it out and see if people care and then it turned out people cared and, and times got even more divisive and so on. And and so, I mean, every single one of these moments, I'm like someone asked me the other day, do you still get, do you get nervous at all? Like, are you still nervous for some of the things? 
I get nervous all the time um, and, and quite often, but it's more so now like, you know, I've taught myself to recognize the imposter syndrome as like the kind of protector in my mind and to like see it, you know, like recognize it and just not let it be all consuming. And there's so many different practices in my life that I, I do to maintain the calm to be able to do that. Well, I, the, the fact that you persist is is impressive and inspired and and uh, good for you. I'm and I'm glad that you have some imposter syndrome that shows you're you're human beneath the uh, uh, prodigal uh, uh, <laughs> robot that you seem to be putting out all this stuff. Um, so let me get to the book and 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 also the broader sort of conversation that I, I mentioned that we've been. Uh, earlier in the show that the, the title of this program today is more polarized than, than ever. It's a question mark. It's a reference to how the world seems so divided. The subtitle of your book, I'm just saying, is Maintaining Civil Discourse in an Increasingly Divided World. It feels like that could not be more apt right now. Uh, the current and latest crisis in the Middle East, of course, the possibility of a new world war, seemingly particularly fueled by extreme rhetoric and division in social media. Do you believe we are all more divided than ever? I think that we are more divided than ever, but that we, well, I actually don't think it's more divided than ever. I think about a year or two ago, we were really at a peak and it's kind of this constant like peaks and valleys, but, uh, right now is a really is is a peak moment for sure and what i think is starting to happen is people like me whether it's putting out my content putting out a book um, and others are starting to recognize that it's really problematic and that you know we don't have to all be on this media cycle constantly riding with every single world problem that happens and feeling like we have to have a response to it um, i have people send me you know text messages and group chats being like who do we think caused this bombing or what do we think this like what do we think happened here you know and i respond being like who are we to have the information for this and even if we did i don't i don't know that we can do anything in this moment like just be quiet and listen and see what the world is saying and just kind of like take it in don't have, you don't have to have an opinion on everything at at every moment and so i think i think the conversation is changing and there's more focus on you know how dependent we are or how much time we spend on social media just consuming content but i do think it's it's a quite a divided time right now especially as we head into another u.s election i think it's only going to get worse and it's not just the u.s i mean it's you see that kind of polarization everywhere in the world in uh yes. in iran here in canada even you know um let, let me zoom out i mean i'm someone who the internet is undoubtedly um uh, something that has done, you know, has has created magical wonders, uh, including yeah. this this whole program. I mean, what we do right now, it's all digital. It wouldn't exist twenty five years ago, thirty years ago. Um, you and I talking on Zoom and putting it out there and whatever. Uh, that said, I I I blame the internet. I mean, I I think that we are worse off in terms of the the dialogue, in terms of the discourse. Uh, today than we would have been 20 years ago. There's so much anger and so much loneliness in the world today. What is the role of the internet and social media? Because, um, or let me put it this way, to ask you the question, do you think the internet, I know it's a broad term, 
has helped or hurt civil discourse? Ooh, I thought you were going to say humanity, and I was like, oh, easy answer, net good. Um, but I think civil discourse in particular, I think it has hurt. Uh, and the reason I say that is because while I think it's created more informed people, people don't know what to do with that information. They weren't taught what to do with that information. And so they regurgitate and reshare whatever they see online without fact checking, without ensuring accuracy, without forming a fully informed opinion, checking other sides of things. They, they, they you know, unintentionally go down into echo chambers where they're fed the same types of information, not knowing that on that same platform, there was a world of the entire opposite opinion that exists. Um, that you wouldn't be exposed to because they're trying to reinforce what you like and keep you on the platform. Uh, so, you know, I think for civil discourse, it's it's not it's not been good for humanity. When you say people are more informed, are 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 they? Are we? I mean, uh, it feels like we're informed about a thin layer of a lot of things, but yeah. the reading books or going deep into issues is eroding and evaporating. I mean, it, it, it's uh, what good is it to to be informed if the information is coming from a headline that you read on X? I agree with you because that's another problem, right? Like people just read headlines and then they, they all of a sudden feel like they're, you know, uh, social justice warriors for a certain topic without knowing much about it at all. And then all of a sudden some... You know, like we can talk specifically, like in this Palestine and in, in Israel conflict that's happening right now. Like, it's so easy for people to just say, like, oh, like I, you know, I stand with Palestinians or I stand with Israelis and I stand with people dying. And it's so easy for someone else to come and be like, well, you're sympathizing with terrorists or you're sympathizing with, with uh, you know, people who are causing genocide and so on. And it's just like this. It's really easy to have just like see someone as the other on social media instead of seeing them as a person that might not have a fully informed yeah. informed opinion who might be new to this topic and is just trying to put out some support and so you know intentions could be good at first and then it just quickly you know swings the other way and and then it erodes further when you take relationships that have been built over years and in moments on social media you can hit unfollow i don't want to see this content anymore i don't like their opinion on this yeah. and a relationship has just been really damaged yeah. and uh, I, I don't think that's good for society and yet and yet you do believe that intention uh your intention our intention anyone's intention to try and right the ship or change things can be important can be powerful can be effective you you say let me quote you civil discourse is within reach those who promote the idea that it is impossible are creating a self-fulfilling pro prophecy which reinforces negative discourse practices embrace the belief that it's not only possible but it's essential for meaningful conversations. Do you really think we can somehow uh, manifest civil discourse by believing in it? Yes. So one of my favorite quotes is that democracy dies in darkness. When we don't actively believe in democracy and like fight for it, it does die. Um, and civil discourse, you know, like it, 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 a lot of it is entangled with the news and what is like the fourth estate. Right. And so when I think of democracy, I think that freedom of speech is incredibly important. Um, so I do think that we can reach a point again when people actually prioritize civil discourse, because 
either we have to, um, you know, we have to come together at some point, or which, you know, unfortunately usually happens around war wars. Um, but uh, I think that it's it's a requirement, I think, to, to uphold civil discourse because it's it's it upholds democracy. I hope you're right. Because even a moment ago when you were talking about how uh, you think this year things are, there's people like you, there's other people out there who are who are trying to call this out and, and look for more reflection and more civil discourse, et cetera. Uh, part of me was inside, of course, I would never do it uh, in front of you, but rolling my eyes going, well, I mean, really? Like, it just seems to be we're on this yeah. track that is getting worse and worse. And now with the propagation of... Uh, of let's call it fake news um, on all sides and being created by AI and bots. And, you know, no one knows, was the hospital bombed? Wasn't it? Was it the parking lot? Who did right. it? I mean, all of that and no one's taking the time to wait and find out. And even if we do, what do we know? What's the truth? I mean, that's scary stuff that can feel pretty dystopian. And yet your, your hope or belief that we can change things is... <laughs> something I would like to believe in. I I think we have to. I mean, uh, another one of my favorite quotes is that we have to act as if it's possible to radically transform the world and we have to do it all the time. <laughs> and that's the truth, I think, especially like it, when I talk about me and my why my opinion is unique as a 24 year old, it's because it also comes with that mindset. I get the privilege of having a, a, a you know, imagining I'm going to have a long life and have all these different opportunities and doors to knock on to show up and try to change the world for the better. And if at this age, I don't believe that's possible, what reason do I have to wake up every morning and get out of bed? You right. know, so right, right so really, it has to. That optimism has to exist. That's um, why the Persians. That's why people. the Iranians love you. You see, what a <laughs> what a piss out of Khubi has to you, giving us this hope and 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 being proactive. Let let me ask you about some of the basic rules you identify or suggest uh, about how we can achieve some kind of civil discourse and have a, a positive and productive discourse. Uh, one of them that I really like is you talk about self-reflection. How, how do you practice it? How do you practice it? Oh, so many ways. Um, I set a lot of time early in the morning when no one else is awake uh, for my own self-reflection. And specifically also, there's meditation, there's like, you know, there's there's like lots of different ways that I get in the right mindset and zone to be able to self-reflect. Um, some of the other ways are th going to therapy and talking to a therapist. I have a coach that I a business coach that I work with to talk through things as well. So all of those moments are really important. Like if whether it's in a work capacity, why did this negotiation with someone that I'm working with go so poorly? How did it end up getting like tense and angry, you know, and, and talking that through with another person out loud usually allows for your own self-reflection when you hear yourself kind of solve your own problems. Um, the same is true in therapy. But so sorry, you had me at I when I f first wake up in the morning. So yes. what do you I mean, is it meditation or what do you do? You wake up and you uh, and you I write, you write, I write. What, so, what, what, what do you write in the morning? So like 80% of what I write never sees the light of day <laughs> um, because honestly, it's that it's that same mentality. It's the uh, imposter syndrome. I'm like, 
I don't need to have an opinion on this. No one needs to hear this. And sometimes it's true. It's not imposter syndrome. It's like, yeah, this is my opinion. I needed to write this to flesh it out and understand my own opinion and the nuances of it better. But it doesn't need to exist in the world permanently. On the right. Internet. But if Shakespeare took that attitude, we'd never have the canon of impressive. Plays, and of course, right? there's that as well. Right. So, yeah. you know, there's a balance there. But that's what I do. I, I unpack thoughts and sometimes they make it out and sometimes they don't. I just wrote this really interesting article that was kind of like me playing around with the ideas of like what excellence looks like in the music in the music industry. Like what does greatness look like? Artists showing up on time and just ready to go promoting their own work you know, not believing their own hype and like early morning. And I did a whole, but that doesn't sound, that's not self-reflection. That's you're getting to work. I mean, that's, but that's me thinking about my own excellence and thinking about like how I exhibit excellence in the world and how I show up to things. And so, you know, that's, that part of it is like, that's everything I write starts with selfishly. It starts with me and what I think is important to say and what I'm learning in my own life. Um, Because that's the only way I can actually have validity when someone asks like well why did you need to have an opinion on this it's like well because i this is what saves me this is what makes me you know survive or happy or so on totally indulging my own curiosity but do you is this like pre 8 a.m uh pre yes. pre coffee breakfast anything i mean what how how quickly do you go from getting out of the bed to to writing um i get out of the bed i go to the bathroom Maybe I'll take some vitamins and then I will get back into bed and type and I open my laptop from there and I keep all the blinds closed and I pretend it's darkness. The hour by this point is usually like 6 a.m. is when I'm doing this. Um, And on a good day, it's earlier, but I the good days are only possible if you go to bed earlier. So if I could. You know, there's crazy nights I go to bed at 7.30 or 8.30 p.m. just so I could wake up in that, like, weird, groggy state at 5.30 a.m. to be able to, like, have this really, like, intimate writing session with myself to think through all my thoughts. You're one of those who believes in, what's it called, the circadian rhythm or whatever. You should get up with the sun. You should be, uh, or you should get up earlier than the sun, I guess, in your case. I'm less religious than that. I'm one of those people that believes in, like, seven hours or plus of sleep a night and to do what it takes to make that happen and so if you are going to bed late you're probably gonna have to wake up later and i i don't actually think that's good for you but are you in a relationship right now i'm not do you ever hope to be so hard (laughs) yes no i I just i just was and um, hi honey uh this is gonna go really well i'm gonna go to bed at 7 p.m each night as a 24 year old don't have any aspirations of me taking you anywhere yeah, I mean, honestly, the the person I was just dating was okay with it because she also was like would work a lot and loved early mornings. So it's kind of finding people that have that same mentality about early mornings that that reinforces that habit. But I'm also really flexible. Like I think it's important to be flexible about these types of things, and I can find that meditative time elsewhere. But at this point in my life, that's where I'm finding it. Another thing you talk about in the book, in terms of the the basic rules, is tone. How big a problem is tone? It seems to be, uh, oh and the God. mistaking of tone when we're dealing in the digital space. And how how do we, how do you correct that? So, I think it's first since it's you and I speaking. Like Iranian mothers are one of the most interesting examples of tone. The range of tone when it's like, and I don't know, maybe it's Iranian culture or whatever. But whether it's like when we speak to children and the high pitch that we get. And and then it's like the very quick, easy, like fieriness that we have and the like 
like, you know, a, a little bit of the anger in the tone, but it's more like passion rather than anger. So it's a very interesting culture, I think, to study tone from uh, as, as a young person, especially because I find that most Americans lack that same range. Mm. Um, and they're much more, I think, stoic. Um, and they, they hide that that expression a lot more. So Sorry, it, just to cut you off, it's not it's not always the the what is being said; it's the way it's being said. Yes. Like it's like yes. a you know, uh, it's either a simple question or do you want to go out with that person? But you know, the, it's always the aha, uh-huh, you know, it's the it's the and tone is. But of course, in the digital space, sometimes we're just reading words, and you no know. Tone. There's no tone. There's no it's tone. Completely gone. Yeah. And, and so that's one of the big nuances that's missing in digital communication that causes so many other problems, you know, like your tone could be inquisitive and curious and someone sees it as, you know, uh, satirical or like you're trying to make a joke. And and that makes all the difference in the world. So do you have a particular... I mean, what do you do? You use emojis, or how how do you modify tone to make sure that somebody doesn't take you the wrong way? I am very intentional about the conversations I have over text and what I don't ha- allow over text. So when a conversation starts to go awry, or it's like it's very clear it's getting heated, or it's a topic that just is so nuanced that I don't want to type essays, and I don't believe someone's going to read essays on the other side. And it's like, hey, we should have this conversation on FaceTime. We should go get lunch. We should do whatever. And that's that's the way that conversations used to happen. <laughs> and it inevitably allows for you to sit with someone and find common ground, um, whether it's on even on FaceTime. You know, like right. it just it goes so it's so much better than over text. Um, let me ask you now about uh, that. That's that's brilliant. I think that's actually I really actually mean the word brilliant. That's a brilliant thing what you just said in terms of taking the pause and going let's meet and talk about this because we've all gone down the rabbit hole texting and and or whatever and and it starts to you know uh like a, it's like a snowball after a while if you're because and because the tone is is even even actually in that moment sometimes i've looked back and gone in my moments of self reflection at 5 a.m with my laptop uh on on my uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I don't do that. I get up, and <laughs> <laughs> drink coffee, and take my dog out and go work out. Unfortunately, uh, although I do like writing in the morning, I, I'm with you on that. But maybe not at five a.m. Um, but so often we don't pause and and think, why don't I just pick up the phone and talk to this person or set up a meeting or something like that so that this doesn't right. amp up anymore. I, I want to ask you about, this is probably the most important part of, as, far as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned of what you talk about in the book and maybe the most difficult. And you talk about bias mm. and how we can all be guilty of it, as we know. And uh, Milad, I feel like we... We live in a world right now where you can surround yourself. I mean, you spoke about it a a moment ago, particularly digitally, with as much affirmation as possible. Like our platforms are created for affirmation, not information. We live in bubbles. And we see that right now with the the Israel-Palestine debate where, I mean, this week is, you know, if we... if it wasn't, things weren't bad already. It's been a shit show of people coming at any information, objective information that might be out there 
from their own perspective. So the same piece of information will be seen two different ways, depending on the bias. And then there's entire platforms, I mean, our primary communication sources that are designed to reinforce our biases. How do we possibly overcome that? You don't overcome the biases. You become better at recognizing them and knowing how to respond to people when they are acting on their biases. And then you as a person become better about choosing when you act on your biases. We're all biased at all points in time. Uh, and it, it's it's just we all have different lived experiences. And so to effectively communicate with someone who has a very different opinion than yourself, you're actually asking questions to try to understand their biases. How did they get to that bias? How did they get to that opinion? Um, what what happened in their life? Where did they go and visit? Who are the family members that are you know in their ear telling them stories or friends that are um, you know telling them stories that are making them empathetic towards a different opinion than the one that you have? And so that's really, I think, the only way to eliminate bias is not to eliminate it, but to be really good at recognizing it, calling it out, um, and having empathy for people's biases because that's that's I think the biggest challenge of what I try to teach people in the book is like when you see it get uncivil when you see someone have a different opinion when you can when you have that when you get good enough you have that split moment of decision making of am I going to respond to this or not to be able to inject empathy in that moment and be like whatever I do it's going to be with empathy and that's how I'm going to act and that is a really tough skill for people to actually believe and so I said in my bio on Instagram like I'm trying to make caring cool because that's the premise. You have to see this as the best way to live. You have to see this as like cool and it makes your life better. And, and that's hard. That is tough. I'm going to um, see this person who is uh, working for Sepai in Iran and supports this regime that's executing people and murdering people. I'm going to try and empathize with them and understand that, well, <laughs> they grew up in that system. So that's why they're supporting it. Too bad people get executed. That's a tough one. Uh, to kind of accept, you know, and empathize. I understand what you're saying, but uh, that's that's tough. You have so okay. I'll give you the the most generic version of it that I think, as an entrepreneur, that Gary V likes to teach, which is you're going to get hate for whatever you do. You're going to make a company. You're going to build a brand. You're going to put content out. Anything you do is going to generate some hate because it's people looking at you and you're exceeding like their what they thought you would be or you know the box they had put you in and you make them uncomfortable. And so you have to, he teaches like, you have to have empathy for these people. Like how sad and miserable must you be in your own life that you're sitting there and you wanna come and spew hate on me trying something new or me me trying to grow. And that's exactly what I think when I see these people in, in Iran who are oppressors or anywhere in the world that are oppressors is like, I, I have to think, the only way to have empathy for some of these people is to think, you are so broken and so miserable in your own life that you want to bring other people down to that level. And all I believe that we can do is not try to meet that with violence and aggressiveness and hope that that's going to break through to people because it doesn't, in my opinion, like historically, I don't think it works. But instead to be like, hey, there's a chance that you can still switch to the good side and I can show you the light if you choose to, if you so choose. Um, now in Iran, I actually think it's when it comes to this regime, it's, it's regime. It's too far gone. Uh, yeah. I think it's it's at a point of like it's hard to yeah. both sides that one. Yeah, it's hard to both sides that one. Yeah. It's you but know, you I, know when we talk about how the again the question of are we more polarized than ever? Um, 
sometimes I, 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 you know, I think to a certain extent we're going to need to go out of our way to hear other perspectives, right? Because it, part of the challenge of the civil discourse is going to be we're going to hear somebody saying something, and we see this all the time. We've seen it this week where somebody's shocked at somebody else's opinion. It's because they're not generally exposed to it because currently on my Instagram feed, I mean, you would know this stuff better than I working in AI and technology and, and these platforms, but my Instagram feed has taught itself to feed me the things that, to, to affirm what I already like and believe in. So I'm less likely, this is not an objective platform, I'm less likely to see things that I disagree with, opinions, ideas, issues that I don't like and, and disagree with. So when I do see one, suddenly on the street, I go, where did these people come from? How is this, you know, and I'm, I'm shocked. Um, this is a, this is in technology. This is in the, the, the platforms that we are using that um, are dangerous or, or I mean, how are we supposed to cope with that? We have to teach boundaries to people with these platforms and to teach them that this is, this is what's happening there because it's impossible to tell Meta or X or whoever to not do this. They're they're in the business of making money, right? And they know what works. And what works is to feed you more of what you like because you're going to stay on the platform and that's going to make them more money. So that is because that exists and, you know, that's that is capitalism and we subscribe to capitalism in this country. And you have to then meet it with the other side of it, which is. You have to really teach people how to have a relationship with their technology and their lives and to know what to question and not just take at face value because it's only going to get worse. And so uh, I, the simplest way to say this is like technical literacy in schools. Like I do street interviews um, and I just talk to people on the street about like AI and what they're scared about. And half of them say, well, we're using AI on Snapchat. That's the only way I have, you know, I am using AI. This is young people, like 16, 17 year olds. And uh, and they say, but it's so creepy because it knows my location. And I say, well, but Snapchat always knew your location, didn't it? I'm like, I don't remember. I don't know. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. and I was like, I remember giving it the consent to your location. And they're like, no. And I was like, see, this is technical literacy that we're not teaching in school. Right. And so if we're not teaching that, let alone are we, we're not teaching, hey, you can't, shouldn't be on social media all day long every day. And when you're getting all of these news articles and there's some big crisis in the world, you need to step back, go look at other sources um, and explore because there's in my work, I could name like five different platforms right now where you can go. It's a news site and it'll tell you this is the topic at hand. Israel, Palestine bombing in the hospital. Here's three articles from conservative outlets, two from uh, liberal ones, one from an anarchist, one from a proclaimed communist publication. And here are like the highlights of each. Inform your opinion from right. across the spectrum. Right. right. I should say your your mastery or your your you know ideas when it comes to tech are not. Um, I mean, it's somewhat in the DNA, symbolically at least, because um, your dad, Omid Kordistani, is is not just a prominent and successful Iranian, but very much so in the new tech and social media space. One of the founders, I mean, of Google, former chief executive at Twitter. What would you say, like, I'm so curious, the, the dinner conversations you've had now that you're in this space talking about this stuff, what, what would you say you have most learned from him about how we must navigate the digital world? Um, what I've learned from him on navigating the digital world, 
I think from him, I've learned how the digital world is actually not the full reflection of reality because he doesn't live in the digital world constantly. Um, you know, like he's not on Twitter posting constantly and he's not glued <laughs> to his phone in that way. And the people that he works with aren't either. They create this tech and they use it and they see value in it. Um, but they all have better relationships with it as the creators of this tech. And they know what to question and to say, all right, like I just Googled this information, but this is the internet, you know, like anyone could have put this. And so let me check other sources and and not having a public opinion. And so you see that even from like the founders of Google, Larry and Sergey, they're not on social media. They're not talking on every issue. They're not, you know, like um, so influencers in the modern way. So interesting. And so many of the others aren't. And so as the creators of it, they have way better relationships to the tech than the consumers do. Is he, uh, you know, when you have the, these AI uh, founders, et cetera, who have, uh, I can't remember what it's called. They've, they've put out this new manifesto or something saying, things are going too fast, be careful, we're issuing a warning. Does your dad, is he, is he, does he sort of feel that way about social media, that the things have accelerated to a point where it's, 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 it's going places where it was not intended? I don't have his opinion on that. Um, I think, yeah, I don't know that I have his opinion on it moving too fast. All I can say is from me watching his usage of it, his relationship with it is very, uh, it's very much closer to like a boomer than it is to Gen Z or a millennial or Gen X or like, you know, he's very private on social media. And uh, I think, and even with, you know, my younger siblings, he posts even less content and wanting to ensure that they have their own choices that they can make and, and privacy choices. So I think watching his, his actions, uh, he's just much more intentional with it and kind of maybe understands that tech innovates very quickly and for consumers to catch up and for regulation to catch up and, and all of the, the mental health issues that that causes in the transition is kind of just a... Um, a byproduct of innovation. It's messy sometimes. What do your parents think of your book? What do they say? Besides, way to go, you know. So my mom read the book and she loved it. My dad is not a big reader. I don't think he's read my book, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. But, you know, he, he watches some of my content online and uh, he's he's always just like very surprised. He's just like, wow, like I just one day you turned into Tony Robbins. It's crazy. And, I, you know, and he's, he, he's, he's proud and he, he exudes that, but, um, it's, yeah. His, Can you not appeal to him to read the book? Uh, as, <laughs> I did, yeah. but I think, uh, I don't know, you know, I think that mm -hmm. for him, like he asks me a lot of questions. I talk about it a lot. Um, and I don't know, there's there's some darkness to the book, you know, like where I think a parent to go and read through yeah. like the almost like the diary of your kid yeah. is a little bit intense. So there's a part of me that thinks that, that that's his hesitance. You're, most of your content, I think all of your content is in English, right? You don't do um, content in Persian necessarily. And yet you have a big Iranian following. Uh, you're yeah. an American kid. You're born in the Bay Area. Your parents are both Iranians and prominent ones, of course. How Iranian do you feel in terms of your self-identity? Very Iranian um, is the truth, because there's so many different moments. That, and I, I talk about a lot of them in the book, but like 
Farsi was my first language. I went to Mahdakudak in Iran for like three months out of the year, like multiple years of my of my, you know, um, adolescent life. And my community was always strongly Iranian. And my friends in school, even like, you know, I had a lot of they're like me, first gen, you know, Iranian Americans, Iranian immigrant parents, first gen born here. I had a lot of them in school and those were who I tended to be closer with and closer to my cousins. And it was basically through, I think, understanding that I was had a different I had different circumstances. I had more family obligations than most. I had a closer relationship to my cousins than most. Mm. I, you know, we would disappear in the summers and go to Iran like that stuff all ended up making me much closer, I think, with my Iranian heritage than the relatability I had with like all Americans um, and, you know, down to the food I would bring to school as a kid, you know, and and having a unibrow and so on. Like it was just <laughs> different upbringing and circumstances that made me really resonate with that. And, with and do you feel a responsibility to Iranians? You you did an interview. You were the interviewer um, with Max Amini, and you asked if he feels a quote unquote moral obligation to representing Iranians as an Iranian American comedian. Let me put that question to you. Do you feel a moral obligation to the Iranian community as a rising Iranian American star and and tech expert and author? So much. Okay, so like last night I went to this event, code.org, and code.org is uh, founded by Hadi Partovi and his brother is Ali Partovi who founded Neo. Both of them have sold companies to Microsoft independently. In their family, they are related to Dara Khoshoshai, who is like the CEO of Uber. And it's just like this star-studded family of yes. like Hardy's been on, Hardy's Iranian. been on the show, actually. We, we did an interview oh, wow. with him. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. And like, but I look at them and I'm like, this is this is excellence. Like the story that they have of we came from Iran, we learned from a textbook how to code on a computer that had yeah. no software on it. And we found freedom through that and built a life and so on. And, um, and, and you know, my parents, to an extent, having a very similar story of that. And so I think, yes, like there is an obligation to pursue what I believe is like excellence, like, um, you know, being an inspiration for the next generation of Iranian Americans. And to an extent, showing that we are great people in society that are doing amazing things. And so much of us are being held hostage in Iran by a government. Um, imagine what Iran could be, what the population of there could achieve, um, let alone just the few of, of us who are lucky to be you know, parents who got out of there or us to be raised here and, you know, and, and what we do. So, yeah, yeah, there's there's some obligation. There's some moral obligation for sure. It's such a great pleasure to talk to you. I, I know I can't keep you forever. Let me ask you a couple Thank more you. questions before I let you go. Uh, one thing that you talk about a fair bit and you, you talk about it in the book, but you've you've done some um, posts in your social media and your videos about it. Uh, you, you talk about something we, you call the loneliness epidemic mm -hmm. that we have these days. Um, and I think people at this point have heard about how our obsession with our smartphones or the way the world is constructed these days has led to a great deal of anxiety, stress, depression in kids, loneliness. Um, are you ever lonely? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, there's definitely moments where I feel lonely, uh, especially I think one of the easiest ones is like when I travel for work, uh, it's like one of the more lonelier times. But I think uh, and then after a relationship ends, you know, as a young person, like you end up 
when the pendulum swings back to like, oh, wow, now I'm alone in my room again. Um, it's, you know, I have those moments. And then also just the dependence on tech uh, when you have all of the dopamine that comes from posting content and people engaging with it. You almost feel like the need to constantly be doing something in the scene, whatever. So that's a disparate way to say, yes, I have moments where I feel lonely and just like the biases or anything else, I've gotten really good at recognizing it and working on not feeling lonely when I'm alone. Um, because sometimes I really love it. Like that self-reflection period yeah. and what that's like, that's you only get that when you're alone. And so you have to find the things that are really you enjoy to do when you're alone to feel, I think a little, feel a little less alone, but yeah, the loneliness epidemic is going to increase. It was exacerbated by COVID, but technology plays a big part in it. Let me end off where we started and um, talk about confidence and, and being able to forge for, forward in a positive way. As an entrepreneur, you talk about the liabilities of what you call the negative feedback loop. Mm. Um, that is, you're, you're building something from scratch, but it can be attacked by those telling you it's a, the idea is bad or criticizing your business or launching personal attacks. We get that a lot. What, what is your prescription for overcoming the negative feedback loop? Um, you, you say we've got to learn how to stay positive. How do you do that? So this goes back to a little bit of like the stoic philosophy that I love and, and talk even about in the book. I really believe offense is something you choose to take. Uh, someone could say really hurtful negative words to you, but they really are words. And so it could be rooted in, and it always is, it's rooted in their biases, it's rooted in their lack of understanding, their lack of empathy, whatever it is. So when someone gives you either negative feedback and you start to feel angry or upset or whatever, it's re it's that moment I talk about where you need to like catch yourself and recognize why am I getting angry at this? Why am I getting upset? This person, maybe their tone is off. Maybe their whatever is off, but they just are trying, their intention is to give me feedback on this. And I want to make something successful and I want people to buy into it. So I should want feedback and I should be able to take feedback. But what if that negative feedback is causes you to get canceled or that negative feedback causes uh, about your business means that a, uh, an investor is, is goes away or I mean, what, you, do, can you still be cool and calm and empathetic? So I think it's important to note that like the, you can't be perfect all the time. And, and that's how I end the book, you know, is I talk about how yeah, even myself, I wrote a whole book on civil discourse. I'm not civil 100% of the time. You talk to my friends and they can tell you plenty of stories of me getting uncivil because someone said something hurtful to someone and I called them out or whatever it was. Um, you can't be perfect 100% of the time, but you should strive to be excellent as consistently as possible. Like in anything, consistency is always going to serve you the best. And so consistently striving for taking feedback the right way when it's being given matters. And if you take someone's feedback and you don't like it, but you decide to act on it anyways, against your gut feeling and what everything else is telling you, you made a bad decision. You gotta own that, mm -hmm. you're running the business. But your ability to civilly take the feedback and then decide what to do with it later, that's everything. That's the preservation of relationships. I appreciate you, sir. Final question, I, uh, you're, you're 24, uh, a decade from now, you're going to be really old. You're going to be 34. 
uh, what, where does Milan Kordistani want to be in 10 years? Ooh, good question. Um, I'm really hopeful that in 10 years, so many of uh, the old people in our government are gone and that I am hopefully able to help a lot of the young people who are in government. I don't particularly want to get into it myself in politics, but um, I really I really enjoy the the different ways I get to help people, um, whether it's helping them figure out how to express themselves better, writing speeches, creating a brand, um, becoming more effective communicators and so on. So that's one piece of what I hope happens. And then the other is Too diplomatic, work. too diplomatic. You're already doing that. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I want, I know you're a guy at five in the morning with the laptop on your knees uh, planning the future. Where, where do you want to be in 10 years? Be, be Rook. In 10 years, I'd love to be married. I'd love to have a kid. I would love to be doing a lot of the same things I'm doing now. And that's the truth. I, I feel really fortunate to have like figured out kind of what I want to be doing and spending my life doing because it's so broad, you know, like um, it, it, I get I have my hand in so many different things that truly consistency is the goal. So if in three or four years I'm not posting content and you're kind of like, what happened to Milan? He kind of fell off. That's how you know I'm not where I want to be and, you know, on the track for 10 years. But if you keep seeing my content, you're like, God, I'm so annoyed of this guy. He keeps putting <laughs> out content about civil discourse, even five, six years from now. Um, you know, I hope to me, that's kind of success. It's like, I still believe I still have this mission and I'm carrying on with it consistently. And hopefully by then the audience is, is at least a fair bit bigger. I've hopefully convinced a few more people to believe in what I believe in. So, yeah, that's the dream. <laughs> It's great talking to you. To be continued, I've really enjoyed this, and I look forward to continuing our, our, our conversation uh, in, in other times. Thanks for doing this, brother. Me too. Thank you for having me, and thank you for being so well-researched uh, for this conversation, from the Maximini interview to the book. Well done. <laughs> thank you. I uh, hope to see you soon. Come up to Canada. Come, come, come visit Toronto when you get a chance. Sounds good. Chodafis. Chodafis. That is Iranian-American entrepreneur and author Milan Kordistani. His new book is called I'm Just Saying, A Guide to Maintaining Civil Discourse in an Increasingly Divided World. Milan Kordistani joined me from Los Angeles, California today. Rook episode 291, more polarized than ever. We're going to get to our uh, chicken farmers in just a little bit who are going to join me in the Rook studio here. But first, uh, Pega is back here and the, the microphone's back on. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation with uh, Milan Kordistani. That was a, that was a, I, I, like, I, like I said before the interview, I was going to ask him some questions that mm -hmm. I don't think are the simplest questions to answer in terms of uh, how do we solve negativity on the internet? Go. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I, and I think I even, you know, I was listening to him just at the end here too, thinking oh, we do get, we do get pessimistic or mm -hmm. negative as we, 
as we get older. I don't want to overplay him being super young, but yeah. the the fact that he's kind of pushing back, going, "Yeah, man, well, we got to have hope. We got to mm-hmm. we got to believe that we can make make a difference." And and I'm young, and I want to make a difference. But that positivity is actually so the enthusiasm. I loved it. And good for him, man. Good, yeah. Change the world. Do it. If you can make the civil discourse happen, please do it. Yeah, I know. I was, you know, the whole time I was thinking it was such an such a wonderful conversation to listen to, first of all. And also it brought me back to when I was 24 years old. I kept thinking, did I even think about... Which wasn't about, that long ago. I like I mean, how you talk about how, what are you, 30? 10 years Wait, ago. All right, 10 years ago. All right. <laughs> but I kept on thinking, I was like, at 24, I wasn't thinking about imposter syndrome or anything yeah. of the like. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know. How old? Uh, given my years in therapy. Exactly. You know, I'm like, what are you, how old are you? I was yeah, like, yeah. wow, yeah, you know, yeah, for, yeah. for someone at the age of 24 to be that... Um, self-aware. Self-aware, yeah. exactly. And to yeah. be so deep into self-reflection and to identify I want things. a video camera on him to know if he gets up at 5 That's exactly what I was going to say. I'm sure oh, there's, you know, some, you know. there's some nights where as a 24-year-old, <laughs> you've gone out, you've partied. I don't know if you're up at 5 a.m. journaling. But, I don't, but he seems, he's obviously prolific. Mm-hmm. He's obviously focused. Yes. He's obviously, and there's, I think he he benefits from having, uh, you know, he's, he's grown up with resources mm-hmm. and he's grown up with some well-known parents who've Definitely. done big things. So he thinks big. Mm-hmm. He's got the, the liberty to, he allows him, he's emancipated. He mm-hmm. thinks big. I can do that, you know, which even, even for all, as, as he said, imposter syndrome and his self-criticism, mm-hmm. there are, for the most part, I mean, you know, from young people growing up don't necessarily think big. You That's know, it's, right. it's a, even, Older folks don't oh, think I was I mean, say, it's exactly. a tough thing to do to go. I, I'm going to change things. I'm going to build the biggest, you know, and uh, and I like that he's not even enamored of politics. He wants mm-hmm. to, you know, he wants he 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 sees how how influential you can be without going there. Without going there, yeah. Um, he mentioned something that really really stuck with me, and I think it was when he was um, talking about cancel culture. He was saying that it actually limits communication. Which I thought, of was, course. Which I was like, that's genius. I mean, I it's well, so he, simple, but everyone's hearing, afraid to say exactly, things. Exactly, hearing yeah. him say that, I was like, you know what? It's so true. It's it's like we're these two extremes. Either there's people who are so afraid because of cancel culture, or there's people who are so out there and just as we've said, you know, at the top of the show, that they're just echoing things that they don't necessarily even know about. Yeah, but that doesn't. That's not inconsistent with cancel culture because they're echoing things. In, in, a, in an effort to be part of their tribe mm-hmm. so they don't get canceled yeah. some, sometimes. But the other thing that, uh, in terms of the thinking big uh, mm-hmm. element, uh, I really enjoyed hearing about his dad's, I said, what did you learn from your dad? Mm-hmm. Which he thought about it for a little bit there. <laughs> There's that pause. The idea that his dad, it's one of the co-founders of Google, right? That's right. And, and, and the former chairman or whatever of Twitter for mm-hmm. five years, does not believe Google and Twitter are the real world. Like to, we. how often do we hear that? That the people, he said, you know, that because his dad has been on the inside, mm-hmm. he knows that everything you see on Google isn't the gospel truth or that you have to be wary of Twitter or whatever, you know? It's And it's the same, it reminds me, as I said in the interview, of these people who are at the forefront of AI right now mm-hmm. going, hang on, you know? Um, uh, it's It's... It's incredibly valuable, and the idea that his dad isn't even on social media. I know. That, <laughs> right? that, I, I took a moment when I heard that. I was like, oh. <laughs> well, when was the last time you saw 
Omid Kordistani, you know, going off on uh, <laughs> Pierce Morgan in Twitter, right. you know, like or, or X or whatever it's called. Um, anyway, I'm grateful to Milan Kordistani for coming on the show. I look forward to seeing more of what he does mm-hmm. in the uh, in the coming years. I, I like to, too, at the end, I said something like, uh, in 10 years, you're going to be really old, 34. And he didn't, I, which is, I'm being sarcastic, yeah. obviously, didn't smile or, or laugh. He was like, yeah, actually, I will be. That's old. I was like, oh, boy. Yeah, I'm going to not comment on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we don't. We don't have a lot of time for the roundup today, and I want to get to our our farmers are here, and uh, they're going to come into the, the studio in a moment. So, um, did you? I think you have one item that you really want to talk about for the Rook Roundup. Let's get to that, and we can do the the rest on Monday. Yeah, I just quickly wanted to talk about um, Darius Merjui's funeral. We saw some um, viral videos coming out of of the funeral and the proceedings, and it was just you know again, this is something that we've talked about so many times, but you see Iranians um, taking any opportunity they can to uh, voice their discontent. And so at the funeral, there was... Two steps back, Darish Merchui, as we talked about on Monday, mm-hmm. iconic filmmaker. Filmmaker, yes. Who, in an octogenarian, was in his early 80s, was murdered along with his wife... That's right. ...in Iran, in Karaj, uh, stabbed to death. To death. Grotesquely. And we don't... And still no answers. Still no answers. Still no answers. A lot of theories. A lot of theories, yeah. um, but still no concrete answers as to what happened um of course there's some theories saying that it's state-sponsored killings um again many theories but um so at the funeral which just happened recently there were i think it was yesterday yesterday yeah yeah. Yeah. um there were a couple things one was the fact that um you know there was a mass of people who, who showed up to show their support for for this incredible filmmaker and while being there, they started chanting slogans against the regime and, and you know, echoing the woman life freedom movement. Um, that was one thing I wanted to mention. The other thing that I really wanted to highlight is that their daughter, Mona, mm. actually attended the funeral um, without a headscarf. Ah. And I thought, you know, to be again, and it goes back to what we've said about that generation of mm. young Iranians and, you know, just them being fearless and in in the midst of you know, I can't imagine what she's going through. But to think that, you know, I have this platform, I'm still going to stand by this. Forgive me for this really, probably really stupid question. Mm-hmm. But is that a big deal? Yes, of to course. To attend the funeral without a headscarf? Oh, absolutely. Be- well, because we hear that there's young women in Iran not wearing the headscarf. Yes, right? but I mean, think about the context. This a high-profile funeral. This is a high-profile yeah. funeral. There's already some theories about, you know, whether they were killed. It was state-sponsored. It wasn't. Her father in the last couple of years was be- had become very vocal there's all of these different things floating around and she decides to show up there give a speech might i add without a headscarf wow so incredible yeah i i i think you know we talked about darish merjui on 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 monday at some point we have to do a proper Mm -hmm. um look at his legacy and his life i've seen some of that but uh but it would it would also be nice to know what is going on? I mean, those theories uh, that this is part of a pattern meted out by the the regime or whatever, there's reason for those theories Mm -hmm. because why are filmmakers suddenly being murdered in Iran, right? right? And and when they talk about the chain murders, the effort to go after intellectuals, Mm -hmm. et cetera, in in the early part of the Islamic Republic's years, this is this harkens back to that in a in a 
macabre way. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I mean, you know, again, it goes back to your essay about this. There's no mystery. I, that's that's what this brings me back to. I mean, yes, they're theories. But for anyone who's for any Iranian at the very least, you know, again, there's no mystery with this either. That essay was only from three weeks ago. Yes. Available now <laughs> on Rook platforms. Uh, Pega, thank you. And thank you. Uh, I, please make way for the chicken farmers yes, that I'm are coming excited. in. Uh, let's get Mahar and Fashid in here. And uh, okay, so uh, we all know that migration from Iran has grown exponentially in recent years. And we know that here in Canada, and specifically the greater Toronto area, we've seen a massive uptick in the number of Iranian immigrants who are here. So perhaps it is not surprising that we are going to see a diversity of individuals, lifestyles, professions that accompany that growth. And yet, and yet, as a person of Iranian descent who has spent most of my life growing up here in, in Canada, it was still a surprise Uh, to hear about a young Iranian couple north of Toronto who are chicken farmers. That's right. Bahar, Bahar Dori, and Fashid Aryan run the Kalyan Hobby Farm, which is about 45 minutes north of Toronto. But don't worry, they are typically educated professionals with engineering backgrounds as well. It's a great pleasure to welcome Bahar and Fashid from the Kalyan Hobby Farm to our Rook studio. Hello, you two. Hi, thank you very much for having us. Nice to have you both here. Am I the only person who, who is surprised to find a young, accomplished Iranian couple who've decided to become farmers in Ontario? <laughs> no, honestly, that's the same feedback that we get normally once people know we are Iranian behind this uh, um, hobby farm. The feedback from other Iranians or from... Yes, uh, no. well, normally they don't know we are Iranian until uh, we get in a conversation with them um, when they request to come for a visit and or have questions about the chickens, chickens yeah. and uh, normally like through just looking at the, uh, the names we can see they're Iranian and start having a <laughs> conversation in Farsi. oh guys you are Iranian and what do they say what is their what's their reaction آهنگ ایرانی گذاشته بودیم یا مثلا مثلا اون روز دیزی گذاشته بودیم توی چیز دیزی رو می‌بینن و خیلی سورپرایز میشن و بعد حالا خیلی واسهشون جالبه I wasn't going to ask this but it occurred to me as I'm listening to you two and this bilingual conversation do we speak to the chickens in Persian or in in English <laughs> both uh, the, yeah <laughs> and what do they react best to so they're they're basically i mean somewhat they're persian chickens culturally yeah, they <laughs> even though they if they were right. born in they're canadian persian chickens yeah, that's true. <laughs> um you're you're both city people i mean you've yes. both lived and grown up in cities does it I'm going to get into the story of how it happened and everything, but does it shock you that you're chicken farmers? Um, I believe mostly it shocked me <laughs> because I had no clue how my life is going to be uh, if I start such life. I was I never had that experience before, even uh, back when I was in Iran, neither in Canada, because um, I was living in downtown Toronto, um, since I immigrated and even in Iran I was living in city so never experienced the um, homesteading life <laughs> so mm-hmm. I mean the story I hear is that you're into the countryside but you're a city girl right yeah I never experienced that myself but what happened uh, when I got into that initially I was uh, 
like kind of hesitate if I really want to continue that. I wasn't sure like how what? long is go- like living in a, a countryside. And that was that was precipitated by Farshid, right? Well, yeah. I mean, if Farshid didn't exist, no. you'd be no. downtown oh, no. Toronto girl. I love living in condos. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Farshid, the story is that you you're a Tehran kid, right? But when you were growing up in Tehran, you would go to, I didn't even know that Kalyan, I didn't know actually where the name came from until I was prepping for this interview. It's actually a village in uh, in Iran. Where is it, north of Tehran? In, uh, no, it's in uh, northwest. Northwest. Yeah, of uh, Iran. Towards Tabriz? No, close to Erdebil. Uh, close to Erdebil. Yeah. And so what's the story? This is in your family. You would go there to a village there? Or? Yeah, Kalyan is my father's خیلی جای باصفا خیلی جای یونیک اکثر خونه ها کاگلی و من زمانی که یادم میاد بچه بودم تابستون ها تا درسمون تموم میشد من پدرم هم معلم بودن دیگه همگی جمع میکردیم میرفتیم اونجا خونه عمومون با پسر اموها دختر اموها کلن کل تابستون یعنی سمای تابستون اونجا بودیم دیگه صبح تا شب بیرون همش تو جنگل و دشت و چوپونی و اصلا به بهار میگفتم گفتم من گیر کردم تو اون زمان واقعا اصلا was it an actual farm or was it just a more of an outdoorsy kind of cottage همه چی بود میدونی مثلا فارمم بود باغم بود همه کارا رو ما میکردیم من عموم هم باغ داشت هم فارمر بود به قول معروف و گندم میکاشتن جو میکاشتن عدس میکاشتن بعد این مابین مثلا ما کمکم میکردیم موقع دروی محصول آخر تابستون که میشد دروی محصول کمکشون میکردیم کلن آره اینجور لایف آزاد اصلا واقعا میگم and you were you're an IT engineer yeah and so so when you and you came about five years ago from right. Iran to Toronto, was this in your in the back of your mind that if I come to Canada, maybe I'll end up going to the countryside and starting a farm, or was that just something that came later Honestly, after you met Bahar? Honestly, nah, man, the zamani ke umadam inja ya tryam kardam ke, masalan, basa chand ta shoglaiti, masalan, imaginationam az umadan be Canada, im bud ke khob tu ye kandoi miayi. گرفتی و مثلا شب و میای آره دانتان ترانو شب اون جور چیز مثلا توی خب اونم خیلی عجیبه چون که کانادا آی مین کانادا از ا ویری بیگ کانتری ویت ا لات اف آوت دورز یو نو سو ایتس فانی دت اور کنسپشن از بٹ اف کورس 80% اور مور اف کانادینز لیو این ا سمال استریپ اف سیتیز الونگ دی سادرن بوردرز اف کانادا سو سو آی ام کیوریس وات هاپن یو فرست اف آل هاو دید یو گایز میت وی هاد ا میچوال فرند and that's the way we met each other uh, in Toronto you met right yes. you didn't right. know each other in Iran no 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 like four years ago um, and uh, everything happened too fast so we got yeah. married <laughs> in a year so, so you go wow you yeah, like, really year. liked each other yeah. you got married in a year and you were still living in the city at that point yes and so uh, who starts the conversation to say he, of course he does yeah, Fashid. Fashid. so you really Fashid, you, you've changed this woman's life yeah <laughs> So he says, honey, now, now I should explain. There is a, a new kind of, uh, I don't want to say hip or like, you know, something. There's, a, there's been a trend in recent years um, of people who go back to the land and, and you know, uh, but it is counterintuitive. I mean, all of 
you know, what mo- mostly what we've seen in recent decades in a place like Canada, mirroring most of the world, is a more urbanized country. Most people move to the cities. There's less farmers. There's less farming. There's less of what in general. So, so you're bucking the trend, but particularly for Iranians to make the decision to say, actually, we're not going to live in the condo or the Richmond mm-hmm. Hill or the whatever. That and there's people listening. I mean, even our audience is. We've got the analytics of the Rook audience, which is Iranian immigrants around the world mostly, and they're all big cities and they're living in big cities. So, so you guys are outliers. So, the conversation. So, this guy that you love, who's now you've married, says what to you? Says, "Honey, let's go and live in the in a field." <laughs> no, actually, um, he's a smart. So, it started uh, uh, pretty much being in tune with what I was looking for. Uh, we started looking for a condo in Harbor Front, um, and then, but at the same time, he was. Um, like opening the conversation about the beauty of living in a countryside. So I was just disregarding whatever he was saying. Uh, I was so much against that. I had no clue that like how the life would be uh-huh. if we start by the way life. the funny part about this is you're way more into it than him now in <laughs> oh, terms <yeah. laughs> of the social media and everything this is like you you, you fully oh, right embrace now, it's this totally yeah. different. <laughs> <laughs> So what what seals the deal? What or what changes your mind when you're kind of like rolling your eyes in the beginning? How does it, how does he win you over to this idea? Gradually, I started um, falling in love uh, with the beauty of such life because he was constantly talking about uh, his childhood, um, the joy that this kind of life brings to your life, and uh, the impression of living in uh, nature. And I started, you know, showing some interest, and we started looking at some property north of Toronto. And uh, I remember the first time we started visiting the area that he wanted me to take a look and consider. I really felt connected. Mm. And that was, I believe, the the tweak that happened. Mm-hmm. I, you know, this is not, I don't want to, nor do I want to give people the impression that you're, I mean, you're not Arctic explorers or something. This is like, you know, it's an hour north of Toronto yes. and right. it's a very chic yeah. place that you have. <laughs> so, so you still have, you know, uh, but nevertheless, can you explain, can you put into words a little bit, mm-hmm. what is the magic? Like if you're, if you're talking to me or a bunch of people who are living in cities right now, and sure, you know, I come up to a cottage or something, I go, oh, it's so beautiful, but, you know, I love all my creature comforts of being in a city. What is what is it that you get either literally or spiritually from living in the countryside that makes such a difference? Uh, if I want to talk, um, like basically talk from my experience, definitely um, I would say, um, I start by like letting you know about my personality. So I'm not a, like an easygoing person, <laughs> opposite fashion. You are not an easygoing. No, person. I'm not. Okay. Uh, so I used to be like. Uh, Do the chickens prefer Fashid? Because <laughs> he's more easygoing. No, no. well, right now I'm I'm different oh, uh, compared no, to like okay. three years oh, ago. Oh, okay. Yes, this but changed I mean, you. The, the, the yes. chickens have changed you. Yeah. Oh yes, these <laughs> live chickens, oh, of course, chicken trophy. <laughs> so what happened? Um, what I experienced of such life, it helped me to um, manage my level of stress and reduce the anxiety that I normally used to experience because as I said I'm not an easygoing person mm-hmm. so I 
really take everything very serious. So my uh, stress level always was high. And since we started uh, this life, I mean, this uh, countryside lifestyle, so uh, I started f- like seeing the changes happen in me uh there is um, a term chicken tropy uh it chicken is chicken therapy is a yes. thing That's well a apparently it is not um something that it's i don't know it's not in the medical science. journals yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yes obviously but uh definitely it's something that people who experience being uh in interaction with chickens can confirm that it helps <laughs> you <laughs> Sorry, no, this is great. You have to it helps reduce the level of stress huh. because, uh, yeah, so you, when you are interacting with uh, with animals um, and chickens that are well known for being calm and comforting, are uh, they? I didn't know that. I mean, I don't know a lot are. about chickens. I yeah. know my dog is. He's mm-hmm. in fact, Oogie's a therapy dog. He can he he calms anybody who's around him once he's finished uh, kissing you and licking you and everything. <laughs> but but I mean. Uh, what what do chickens uh, chickens are calming animals they are, birds yes no believe me if you are um aren't like, they kind of running around and squawking no. and stuff <laughs> well once they start you know uh having some interaction with you and you start feeding them mm-hmm. you will see uh that they are kind of showing some kind of friendship with you are they affectionate does a chicken come towards you and they yes they do so a few of our chickens um, in particular they are very um uh, bonded to us and uh, w- once we try to change their location because we do have uh, like backyard chickens and mm. also the one that we have at the farm and we move them to the new chicken coop that was very fancy so we thought they're gonna love that <laughs> uh, believe it or not after three days we ended up to bring them back to our backyard wow. because we noticed that they, they are were not eating they're depressed huh. and th- the only reason um, that we could actually conclude after uh, observing this was they are not uh, we are not interacting with them as much as we wow. used to because we are not living at the farm and just going there for a visit uh, once a day how long do chickens them. live if everything goes well you can expect like 10 years really oh mm-hmm. they, they live a long time yeah so there's a long time to get bonded and 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 i know they have you guys name them you have yes. like yes. they that, based so on their characters they they, so they they have different personalities oh, yes. right. I, I like based on your instagram i haven't i like <laughs> penguin he's oh. got a little red oh, head that's my red, he's got a red top <laughs> yeah. He's got, he's sort of uh, I always say that probably Penguin was uh, a dog on another life that she had <laughs> because, uh, yeah, she's she's very smart. She's so different than other chickens that we have. Uh, and she followed uh, the instructions. So I'm, I'm very impressed. Did you, Farshid, back in Iran, did you have experience with chickens w- in, in particular? I mean, how did you guys end up with, I mean, a farm can be, it's all Farshid. You yes, keep pointing at him. Farshid, yes. <laughs> What do you bring to this relationship? I don't it's know. Easy, easy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. 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 باربند ماشین توی کارتون میذاشتن و میبردن اونجا یه چشم اونجا بودن نگه هم داشتن دوباره برمیگردن این داستان حدود شاید 
20 سال ادامه داشت مرزم میخوام این این مرغا این جوجه ها رو نمیخورین ها یعنی همیشه always... ما حداقل ما من و بهار این کارو نمیکنیم ولی خب قدیم تر که مثلا خب پدر بزرگم یا مثلا دایی من مرغ نگرم داشت آویستی خب این کارو میکردن استفاده میکردن ولی ما نه ما شما زمانی که اسم گذاشتی شما چطوری میتونی بگیم پنگوین مثلا بذاری آره یه خورده تجربه مرغ جوجه از اونجا بود و نمیدونم حالات شما چون ایران نبودین شاید خاطره خیلی نداشته باشین میومدن نمکی میومد نمکی چیه؟ میگفت نمکی نونه خشکی میومد نونه خشکا رو جمع میکرد یا مثلا پلاسیکو نمیدونم دمپای پاره و اینا داشتی ازتون میگرفت بعد در ازاش به شما یه چیزایی میداد مثلا شما کلی پلاستیک پاره بهش میدادی شاید مثلا یه دونه ظرف پلاستیکی بده یا بعضی وقتا جوجه می آورد آره من میرفتم پولم نداشتیم دیگه چیکار کنیم دمپایای دمپایایی که سالم بودن و ما ور میداشتیم میرفتیم میدادیم به این آقای نمکی که جوجه بگیریم مامان من آره خیلی مقاومت میکرد که مثلا نگیر تو آپارتمان نمیتونی یاد چند بارم سعی میکردم مثلا قایمکی تو بالا پشتمون نگهدارم مثلا بچه بودم یه دفعه مثلا میرفتم بالا پشتبون میومدم مثل این آدم که مثلا یه اعتیادی دارم ما بچه بودیم ما هم شک میکرد میفهمید دیگه مثلا بالا پشتبون ما جوجه داریم حالا از اون موقع استارتش خورد ولی پیش نیومده بود که واقعا بخوام نیگر دارم یه جا و داشته باشه Um, I guess first of all, maybe you can comment on whether you've seen her change. But how how has this lifestyle um, changed you? Even though it's something that you've wanted, do, is it ex- everything you expected? آره من خب کلان این lifestyle رو دوست داشتم. حالا با سختیاشم کم و بیش آشنایی داشتم. ولی خب بالاخره شرایط آب و هوایی اینجا با ایران فرق میکنه ولی چیزی نبود که منو بخواد سورپرایز بکنه من کلا آدمی هم هستم که به یه کاریو میخوام انجام بدم به این فکر نمیکنم که خب چه اتفاقی میخواد بیفته انجامش میدم میرم داخل بعد هر اتفاقی افتاد نسبت به اون سیچویشن هایی که پیش میاد تصمیمامو میگیرم آره خب الان خوشحالی یا نه که آره خیلی اف کورس آره خیلی اصلا واقعا یه چیزیه که من فکر میکنم خودم به شخصه هر کسی چند اینو نداره تو این شرایط زندگی من فکر میکنم آدم خوششانسی بودم واقعا فکر میکنم آدم خوششانسی بودم که واقعا از اون لایف سایل شهری و مثلا کار آیتی و ناین تو البته کار ما که ناین تو فایف نبود کار ما توانی فور سیون بود مثلا جدا بشی و دیگه بیای اینور توی مثلا درگیره اینجور لایف استایل بشی من خیلی دوست دارم واقعا دو یو آی لرن فرام مای داگ یو نو آی تینک یو کن لرن ا لات بای ابزروینگ سمتایمز ایون مورال اور اتیکل لسنز یو لرن فرام بیکاز آی آی هولد انیملز تو ا هایر استاندارد دن دن ہیومنز بٹ وات کین یو سی یو لرن فرام دی چیکنز سیریس کوشن یس دی ار ویری کالم اند پیشنت سو آی بلیو These two are the thing I can say I, I learned from them. They've taught you patience. Yeah. They're very calm. So that's why when you are 
uh, experiencing any anxiety or stress, the moment that you get close to them and start feeding them, uh, interacting with them, you completely get disconnected mm -hmm. from whatever is occupying your mind. Mm. And uh, this is the... People talk about that with horses, for example. Yes. You know, this is mm -hmm. kind of, that's animals bring that. Definitely, too, yeah. they, they distract you from whatever is uh, like keeping your mind busy. What 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 would you say you've learned from the chickens? Well, I know that in things that distract me, really, 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 میام میرم تو بکیار بعد اکثرا اینا مثلا میبینیم دارم میام میبینیم مثلا تو خونه همسایه‌ام صداشون میکنم چون صدام کنم میان مثل دقیقا مثل سگ دنبالم میان آره اسمشون رو میدونه اسمشون هم تقریبا پت و پت و مت و بعد نایروبی و پنگوئن خیلی رو اسمش هست پنگوئن واقعا اسمارت بعد آره میان دنبالم و بعد میرم یه تریتی بهشون بدم یه گندمی چیزی یه خوره باشون وقت میگذرونم بعد موز بدی آره یه خوره سبزیجات حالا شاید سر را خریده باشم و برده باشم به عشق اینا مثلا چیز کنم بعد تخم مرغاشون رو جمع کنم it's uh, i mean it all sounds quite romantic you know but it's it's so i mean in terms of people listening going oh this is a great idea it, it, it's got to be a, a lot of work though too right you can't just for example i mean can you you can't go on holiday or something right you've got all these chickens who depend on you <laughs> yeah that's a real concern and uh, we always thought okay we, we, we don't have kids we're gonna have all freedom to go for vacation or any anywhere that we want anytime but in reality it's not that easy uh, because we always have to watch out who's gonna feed the chickens uh, who's gonna watch for them um, and uh, yeah that's kind of uh, restrictions that come with that and also uh, back to your question that you said it's not easy, uh, especially in winter time. Mm. Imagine it's with the windshield, uh, it's minus 30. You yeah. have to go out and feed them. And um, yeah, so that those are. You have to take care of the farm. I know uh, it's called the County on Hobby Farm. Hobby Farm means under 50 acres, right? Yeah, so that's it's a, a 10 acre property. But so. still, you have to take care of the property too, or do you have somebody who does that? We actually we used to have help and uh, sometimes we don't so we we take care of everything but uh, we definitely uh, try to get help as much as we can are, are your parents still around in uh, I mean yes. are they and where are they uh, like currently they are in uh, Toronto they're in Canada yeah. so what do they make of their daughter's um, um, migration to the country <laughs> after migrating to this country still is surprising for my fathers especially <laughs> do they come to the the, the Calion and uh, yes the, uh, they love that um, but you know they, they were surprised because my father the reason my at least my father is very surprised by what I am doing is uh, he always say oh you you never showed it any interest to the hobby farm I had <laughs> in Iran so he had one um, oh, he, it, your dad had one. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's the, the hidden part about my life. So he had one. Uh, it was really hobby farm. It was just something for, for the family to enjoy. Mm. And But believe it or not, uh, that guilt is still with me because I was visiting that property just 
I would say once in two, three months, mm. going for a few minutes. And no, you didn't surprisingly, get it. my father had chickens there, but I never go to It took visit. a hot fiance to convince you that <laughs> uh, you need to. to and right to now, look at my life. And he said, how come? <laughs> what changed you? So it's know. in your DNA d as well. I mean, it's well, a, I so it know. makes sense that you've. Uh, well, my father did that for a few years, uh -huh. uh, but it's different than the story of Rashid, because all his childhood was yeah. actually bonded with that. And I'm guessing your family l supports this idea because of, of course, the, yeah. 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 and you've even the name and Kalyan and right. you're kind right. of. Um, من مثلا ویدیویی که مثلا یه بچه ازم گرفتم من در مورد کلیان صحبت کردم و اینا من مادرم فرستاده برای دخترم و هم پسرم و هم توی کلیان اصلا کلی خوششون اومده و برای دوستاشون و برای فامیلای خودشون فرستاده I mean the town of Kalyan has to know that you guys there's a place in Canada آره ولی آره خیلی دوست دارن چون الان مثلا جوری شده که خیلی از روستا خب مهاجرت میکنن به خاطر شرایط کاری و به خاطر آره چیزی دیگه به شهر میان ولی این که مثلا من اومدم توی کشور دیگه و اسم کلیان و مثلا دارم ازش استفاده میکنم و خاطرات اونجا رو و چیزا رو میگم خیلی براشون جالبه آره خیلی Um, final question. I mean, and one of the reasons why we wanted you guys here is because, quite remarkably, I mean, you've set this chicken farm up and and your lifestyle and and what you you, you preach and you and you love. But um, you've you've garnered this remarkably large following in social media, like hundreds of thousands of people on Facebook and on Instagram following. The, the plight of the chicken, not the plight of the chicken, the, the happy life of the chickens and, and, and your interactions with them. Uh, what do you make of this big, I mean, I, I guess you guys stoke it. I mean, you post videos and things like that, but surely this has become a, been a surprise for you that you've gained this popularity as, as the chicken farmers. Of course, we never um, even thought it's gonna go to that direction. So what happened once we started having chickens, Uh, we were so excited, constantly <laughs> posting our chickens photo on our social media. And then at some point we said, okay, it's too many. So our friends and family, they're gonna be fed with that. So let's make a page just for the chickens. So whoever <laughs> likes chickens gonna follow up right. with, with with our story. So- uh, Yeah, it's called chickens.farmers. Uh, no, what's called? Toronto.chickens. Toronto.chickens, that's it, yeah, yeah. The one that we have yeah. for the, just the chickens. Yeah, which is, by the way, the first thing, when I saw that, I was like, oh, Toronto.chickens and, and, and this is, last year or something i also didn't know you were running oh. i just thought oh these are it's a chicken site you know and these cool people and then that's why it was a shock for me as well that, to find out that i don't know why it should be such a shock i mean we're just human beings but no for sure still, but we didn't yeah. know that uh, that many uh, people around the world are interested in chickens is that what they're interested in or are they interested in your lifestyle or you I mean, what is it what, why are they following you i say this with love of course what mm -hmm. what what do you think it is I believe the level of care that we have for our chickens uh, and believe it or not, many messages that we get from our followers that they don't have chickens, hmm. uh, but they love following us and they know each of the chickens that we have. They know the names, <laughs> right. the characters. And uh, once, uh, if they are not seeing one of them for a while, they follow up with us. What happened to Mahmoud? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> right. they're concerned. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, these chickens are going to become little rock stars. You know, people are going to want to come and visit <laughs> the know. chickens and, you know, take photos yeah. with the chickens. Yeah, and they are. We, we receive many requests like that. Uh, but we are encouraging people to come to Callion Hobby Farm if they want to see the chickens because some of them are in our backyard where we live, which is close to the Callion. Mm-hmm. But we still encourage people to. What do they? Uh, people just can't show up, though. Do they? Should they should contact you, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. But uh, Callion <laughs> Hobby Farm is the place that okay. uh, basically they. Can come and see the chickens. Do you have a? Uh, um, I mean, the story is so sweet, but I mean, it's okay if you have a business imperative behind. Do you, do you want this to become some huge? I mean, do you want to grow the the Calion beyond a hobby farm and 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 have different farms that are part of the system and and make this a big deal? Honestly, ma khodam na dost nadaram. Dar in had beshe. Yani tu bas commercial bere. Dost daram hamechi halat un. کوچیک و قشنگیشو داشته باشه ولی اینکه کلیان رو ما بخوایم بزرگترش کنیم از نظر اینکه مثلا حیوانای دیگه ای بیاریم در حد یکی دو تا مثلا گوت بیاریم مثلا اسب بیاریم اینا رو نگه داریم بعد تیکه تیکه باقای کوچیک مثلا باغ سیب باغ گیلاس در حد مثلا 20 تا درخت هر گوشه درست کنیم اینا رو خیلی دوست دارم ولی اینکه بخوام مثلا به عنوان یه تولید کننده تخم مرغی مثلا بخوایم بشیم من خودم دوست ندارم مثلا چنین اتفاقی بیفته چون دیگه اون تو بحث کامرشیال وارد میشه اصلا دیگه بحثش فرق میکنه چون اصلا لایف استایل اونجا دیگه فرق میکنه من خودم ندوست ندارم But we do have a vision for Kalyan. Uh, we are definitely trying to make it a place that uh, its doors are open to people who are uh, thinking to leave the hustle and bustle cities yeah. and come and experience uh, the living in such atmosphere, nice. uh, having some interaction with animals. As nice. Farshid said, we are planning to have a couple of goats. Hopefully this is spring. We already have this space for that. And um, it's so peaceful there. Uh, and we really like people come and experience the magic of nature. So I can't imagine what, once you have the goats, there's going to be such characters, you I know, know. <laughs> that, that, that people are going to be following the <laughs> story of the goats and that, uh, uh, so that you have to name them, uh, come up with good names. It's such a, a pleasure to see you both here. And, yeah. and I, I love the, the project. I love what you guys are doing. And it's uh, um, another I think really interesting story in the tapestry of what Iranians are doing around the world, but uh, it's it's a, a, a fabulous idea, and and I can't wait to come and meet the chickens at some point. For sure, you're yeah. so welcome. <laughs> Merci, <laughs> Merci Bahar and Farshid, the Kalyan Hobby Farm, and you can find uh, the Kalyan Hobby Farm online or go to Toronto.chickens on Instagram and talk to them and see penguin. <laughs> It's full time for Rook for today. Remember, for all things Rook related, rookmedia.com is our website. Rookmedia.com. All of our previous episodes, our videos, our funnies, our uprising series, rookmedia.com. Also, where you can support us at our Patreon page. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together talented Anakita, Savvy Roham, Super Patty Saw, Smart Pega, Methodical Kaveh. 
Bearded Omid and Sound Person Louise. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please do subscribe if you've not done so already on any, on all of our platforms. You can always find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, Mizu and Bashi.